Welcome to The Advertising Show, America's only radio program focusing on advertising, media, marketing, product development, branding, new media, sales and customer relations. Stay with us for entertaining marketing discussion and our special guest interview. Now, here are your hosts, Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Welcome back live and in person and in living color here. It's uh, The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Being brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com, The Advertising Show. A copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production powered by Shipple.com, the company now known as Tendency. Check it out, S-C-H-I-P-U-L.com. It's an incredible marketing platform here. With Ray and Brad, we've got uh, a guest that we should have on more often, but I'll tell you, each and every time, it's uh, it's a real blessing to chat with George Lois. Uh, his uh, bio says, George Lois, Master Communicator, the legendary Lois, the most creative, prolific advertising communicator of our time. But here's the thing about George Lois. George Lois is a really nice person to talk to. He is not caught up in his fame and all of the things that he has affected throughout his life. And there are a few things that he's done that are absolutely amazing. Running his own ad agencies, he's renowned for dozens of marketing miracles that triggered innovative and populist changes in America and world culture, not just selling stuff, but changing the way we think. In his 20s, he was pioneer of the landmark uh, creative revolution in America he introduced and popularized Xerox. If you were singing I Want My MTV, it was because George came up with that. One day, to be famous, Tommy Hilfiger with an ad. And the, the neat thing about George is his his capabilities are not compartmentalized into the 1960s or the 70s or the 80s. They are tangible and real things that you can take to the bank today. And uh, so, and, and plus, George always has funny and great stories. Some we can tell on the air, some we can't. But right. we, uh, we, we enjoy that as well. So that's our, that's our guest today here. I'm uh, using up all of our time here, Brad, <laughs> to talk about George, but it really, he deserves a, uh, a great setup as well. How have you been doing, by the way? Well, I'm doing wonderful. Uh, uh, summer 2014, we've got the uh, uh, World Cup underway. We've yes. got George on the show again today. Uh, everything's great. I wanted to pose a question to you, Ray. What will a $600,000 a year salary get a broadcast news division? What will a six hundred thousand dollars salary get a broadcast? Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, you're talking about a washed-up journalist, or here, or something? What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Actually, it's the other end of the spectrum. A rookie network news correspondent by the name of Chelsea Clinton. Six hundred thousand, huh? According to website Politico, I'm not going to take credit for that. I make sure Politico.com is been reporting that NBC was paying her 600000 a year, and now they've moved her to a month-to-month basis. But, you know, whether it's Chelsea Clinton or uh, the Bush girl that's also on NBC. Yeah, they, they're really know, pushing her as well, too. Yeah, I, I'm not, not, I've not heard much from the Clinton girl, though. I, I don't. Uh, she's not on currently as much as she was when she was on salary. She's month-to-month, hmm. and she's on a special project basis. But, you know... I don't know about you. You got to give people, I guess, a shot, and they are better than they were when they first started. I'm speaking of both Bush and Clinton. Yeah, and I agree. 
Right. But but I cringed for the first several times I saw them on doing their broadcast. I mean, it was oh, like, yeah. okay, I'm here all about my name. I'm not here because I have any talent or capable of contributing from a broadcast journalist point of view. It's all about my name. And it just wasn't very pretty. Now, they're better today than they were before, but yeah. Ray, 600000 a year? Yeah. When you've got when you've got most uh, television, at least on a local level, they call them twenty twenties. Uh, they're twenty years old. They make twenty thousand bucks a year, and if they get gray and old, or ugly, or saggy, or fat, they're gone, and they replace them with another set of twenty twenties. Yeah. Think I'm wrong? Watch the TV news locally. Lo- local, yes. Yeah, it's 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 embarrassing. I, but I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed for Barbara. I felt bad for Barbara just because. She was having so much trouble, you know, Yeah, it it just doesn't, it didn't make sense. But 600000 that's a nice salary. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah, and we, and, and, and speak, Barbara Walters did go into retirement this year. And what a, you know, a lot of people I think probably learned about Barbara Walters' background when she did retire. Whereas we that are old enough remember she truly was a, pioneer in the broadcast industry for sure. women breakthrough and, yeah uh, just quite a quite an illustrious career kind of like george yeah exactly in the same way she was a game changer as much as george was and you can hang your head on that uh, that span of time that she was very 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 much a part of that industry you know it's weird uh, brad uh, uh, tiger woods you say tiger woods and advertisers <laughs> sometimes run Many times, as of the you know last uh, few years and such, yeah. And we always we always wondered why Tiger endorsed Buick. We never could quite figure that out. Right. Uh, and of course, that ended when uh, uh, you know you know his little scandal came out. But he's back in the news, and it's now it's Acura's turn. Um, Acura has signed a deal with the Tiger Woods Foundation. Uh, they'll provide um, vehicle and philanthropic support. Uh, for, um, let's see, a three-year deal, Tiger Woods Foundation, and three related golf tournaments with the Star Golfer's educational efforts. They will also be named the official vehicle of the foundation in exchange for vehicle and philanthropic support. Uh, the amount wasn't disclosed, but I don't think the amount's important here. I think the, um, the point is, wow. Uh, you know, Tiger's been absent. Of most of the... Uh, Tiger has been absent mostly from the golf industry, He's not, he's been ill. He's had some problems, physical problems, and it's almost like it's he, he hasn't come back yet. But then you've got an automaker, Acura, uh, American Honda, uh, signing up with him again. What do you think about that? I think it's kind of weird. Kind of. Well, my first question would be: Did he get? Did they get Tiger at a bargain because of all the things you just said? Maybe. Uh, that may have been part of the uh, draw because yeah, he did command a hefty uh, salary for endorsements and so forth, or fees, if you will. Yeah. And, and yet, to come back, maybe Acura got him at a bargain. Personally, I find that, and I'll just say this is my opinion, he's damaged goods, and there hasn't been enough time go by for him to reestablish his brand and to clear, clear out the past, in my opinion. Yeah. So, I, I... so they're early, they're, they're first. But maybe it's because they got a special special lowball fee. I don't know. Well, and it's nice to see that they have stepped up to the uh, uh, to the plate to support. You know, a, a foundation is a good thing. 
Acura is a great vehicle, as we all know. And uh, uh, so let's hope that good things come of this and that uh, good things come of Tiger as he pursues his passion, which is golf. I would love to see him on top. I'd love to see his name at the top of the leaderboard or, or at least competing there. But it's like, where'd you go? You're not playing anywhere. Yeah. So I mean, not, uh, you're the golfer. Tell me, has has his game? I mean, he's just. Has it become more competitive? Is his game not what it used to be? What? Well, his game is not what it used to be. Um, uh, it, it seems like he is peaked, and uh, there are a lot of aggressive guys out there who are playing some good golf. And in their defense, it's nice to see that they have the ability to be showcased in these tournaments, and you know, rightfully so. Uh, win these tournaments, but but I think the golf industry, uh, the uh, the golf uh, world misses Tiger and would love to see him come back. Uh, it's it's a uh, it'd be a great story. It's time to move on and forgive and forget, so to speak. Yeah. So we'll yeah. see what happens with Acura and all that kind of good stuff. George Lois is with us today. Uh, we talked about George uh, in a little bit, and we'll tell you more about him as we uh, progress through the uh, the program today. But uh, what, what a great interview. We're looking forward to this with George Lois. You have time right now uh, during the broadcast to go and uh, call somebody and let them know that Lois is back on the advertising show because it's always a great, uh, great time. You had the pleasure of uh, uh, having dinner with George in New York a year or so ago, and that was nice, and he wants us all to come up there and, and do it again, and I think it'll be a fun, fun thing. But in the meantime, we get to uh, listen to George here. And uh, a lot of great questions from Brad as well, too. So it's uh, George Lois time here. But before we do that, Jeremy Kent, another very special part of the advertising show, always provides great content from the U.K., and uh, we're going to do that right now on the advertising show. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, and welcome to Cannes in the sunny south of France for the European News Desk. This week, the U.K. ad market is set to overtake Germany's, the Soccer World Cup drives innovation, and it's the Cannes Lions. A new report from Zenith Optimedia says that the UK is going to storm past Germany to become the world's fourth biggest ad market in 2016. Last year, the UK market grew by a whopping $1 billion compared to a German rise of just $53 million, with most of that increase fuelled by the recovery in the UK economy, while the Eurozone continues to stagnate. Zenith Optimedia sees the UK becoming the fastest growing ad market in Western Europe, piling on another $4 billion by 2016 and edging out the Germans to become the largest European market, hitting nearly $26 billion a year. The report goes on to say that most global growth will come from mobile, which is accelerating 5.5 times faster than desktop, but that TV will remain the dominant medium for some time to come. During June and July, the Soccer World Cup will provide a boost for TV advertising, but Zenith Optimedia predicts sponsors and partners spending more of their cash, leveraging their involvement on internet advertising, with brands more active on social media than at any point in history. Staying with the Football World Cup, Irish bookmaker Paddy Power has partnered with ITV, the UK's largest commercial TV network, and Twitter to sponsor near-live video highlights. ITV will tweet as many as 10 highlights per match, including all the Big England games, with Twitter using its third-party public user data to target people based on where they are, who they follow, and what they write about. According to Twitter's Glenn Brown, users get content they otherwise wouldn't get. The brands get a really simple way to coordinate a two-screen program. The brands know there's going to be a conversation happening about the shows they've invested in, and this gives them a way to make sure they're involved in those conversations. Finally, as we go to air, the Cannes Lions conclude in the south of France and it's been another successful gathering of the world's top agencies, clients and those good folk in the media.
Sir Martin Sorrell kicked off the event claiming that many of the disciplines that are now part of the marketing mix would be alien to Mad Men's Don Draper, pointing out that for the first time Can had awards for data and data visualisation. He said Can is expanding into areas that Don Draper wouldn't recognise. This balance of Mad Men and Maths Men, of art and science, left brain and right brain, is really very important and we have to understand it so everybody inside the organisation can be creative in different ways. Now, who could argue with that? This is Jeremy Kent on the French Riviera for The Advertising Show. On The Advertising Show, thanks so much, Jeremy Kent. It's Ray Shillings and Brad Forsyth. Our very special guest is one that we like to have on more frequently. And, and it seems that uh, time passes so quickly since the last time we had George Blois on the show. George, as you know, uh, amongst other things, has written many books. Uh, matter of fact, uh, is doing some new things with some of the uh, the older publications as well. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He's made the uh, totally unknown Tommy Hilfiger immediately famous with one ad, and it was good. And he saved USA Today from extinction with his breakthrough singing TV campaign. He took ESPN and 94 from Demolition Derby Sports to the number one sports network with his dynamic in-your-face campaign. There's so much more to do. But I think you'd prefer to hear from George. So, George Lois, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. Yeah, oh, uh, me too. But you'd think you'd be sick of me by now. Uh, <laughs> no, we love you, George. We don't get sick of you. George, yeah, how old are you now, that. by the way, George? Excuse me? How old are you now? I'm going to be 83, June 26th. And, going on, man? and I'm 83, going on 12. <laughs> and and uh, you know when you when our younger crowd out there listening watches Mad Men, you could go to georgelois dot com and see that the original Mad Men was George Lois back in the sixties, and he has a not only a illustrious advertising career, but at eighty three, you're still out there creating wonderful messages. We're going to talk about your provocative, emotionally uh, triggering. WebEx, uh, I'm sorry, TEDx talk on the web, which will be available or is now available, I guess, at georgelois.com. And I want to talk about that, George, but I want to talk about that later in the show. First, you know, the last time you were on the show about a year ago, you had just done a couple of appearances, one on Jimmy Kimmel Live, another on Jimmy Fallon, who has gone on to bigger and better things with The Tonight Show. Right. What was What was the fallout from a... From a personal point of view, you did a great job uh, appearing on both of those shows, but I'm curious, a year later, what has been the result of your network appearances on those two talk shows? Well, I did the Kimmel show first. Uh, uh, I went out to L.A. and did it, and, um, you know, it, uh, I, I got, uh, I mean, thunderous uh, reception. You know, first of all, the audience there was great. Um, and um, and I, I I think everybody in in, in New York knows I was on the show, you know. And um, uh, but uh, I got a call from uh, Jimmy uh, Fallon about uh, two weeks later saying, "What's wrong with me? <laughs> how about me? <laughs> hey 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 hey, you know, hey shit face, how about me? Um, I just said any time, anyway. So." Uh, uh, and actually, I found out that um, Fallon was, was actually a big fan of mine. You know, I think I think Kimmel probably heard about me and uh, and read about me and got excited about me. But I think Fallon was like a everybody tells me was a big fan of mine for years. You know, so uh, so uh, um, uh, you know it's um, 
it, it, it it's kind of terrific being on two uh, the two guys. I mean, two really young, bright, uh, you know, really bright guys. You know, and um, having them both uh, really respect you. You know, and um, of course they both. Uh, you know, when they talked to me, they uh, told me um, from the research they did. They told me to tell specific uh, stories that they thought was terrific. You know, mm-hmm. and I said sure. And they made, and they said, uh, and and both of them said, uh, and both of them end with a um, a uh, uh, fuck uh, you, um, and they and they said, listen, make sure you say it. And I said, really? I said, yeah, yeah, we blip it out, but when the, what? But it's such a great story. Without it, uh, and when you say that, um, the audience will go nuts. And uh, they get the reaction, but we have to blip it out. And that's what, and that's what I did. <laughs> well, <laughs> but it's I pretty guess... funny. They both said to me, they, they both have said the same thing. You know, um, say it, you know, and uh, but make sure you say it, you know. Uh, right. uh, you know usually you go on, you, you know, you go on the show and they say, don't you, don't say anything. Yeah. I said, yeah, I, I'm biting my lip and bleeding, you know, not, not being able to curse, you know. That's like the L.A. mayor who congratulated the uh, the team uh, yeah, right. with, the, with those very words. Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Except for they right. went they went out live. There was no uh, no I, way about I, I spoke that right, didn't I? Yeah, okay. Yes. Yes, yes you, you did. did. Yeah. yeah, right. And you being an art director, I noticed it was in a special typeface, all in bold. That was very nice. Right. <laughs> Uh, George, uh, you've got some exciting new things going on with Damn Good Advice, a book that came out, I guess, what, a year and a half ago or so, and it's... it's yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's in, uh, it was in um, uh, up to uh, a, a couple of, a month ago, it was in six uh, languages, and, uh, and I, the reason I went to, specifically went to Greece was to help them sell a Greek version, which, uh, which was very exciting for me to do a... That it, that it came out in the Greek language, and in fact, I I designed some extra pages uh, specifically t- speaking to the Greek people in it, wow. you know. And uh, so I went there basically to help them promote it because it just uh, came out last month, as I say. And um, and that, that's when uh, the, the the TED people heard that I was coming to Greece, and they got excited, and they had me. Uh, first, go to uh, before I went to Athens. I went had to go to Thessaloniki and uh, and give a TED talk. But the excitement, um, I, I it, it's hard to believe. But I'm really, really, really well known in Greece. I swear to God. I mean, I, well, I mean, the people in the street know who I am. There have been dozens of magazine articles, front page photo, uh, you know, front cover photographs of me, wow. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and 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 some long ago uh, that where I was actually good looking. <laughs> George, uh, and we've, we've got proof of that, by the way, at georgelois.com, if yeah, you don't believe me. Hey, you know, there have got to be some listeners out there that are scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, George Lois wrote a book, Damn Good Advice. It's now in six languages. I need to seven, go buy seven, this. Seven. Actually, oh, seven actually, actually, guys, it's eight languages now. Eight. It just happened. Yeah, the other one is gibberish. Yeah. <laughs> But, George, for, for those that are out there that may have not uh, had an opportunity to pick up either a hard copy or download it to their e-reader, uh, give a little background on the book, who it's for, who you wrote it for, and a little bit about what it's about. Um, I tell you, I, 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 it's my tenth book, 
and you know, I'm very proud of the other nine books. But I got to tell you something. I, in doing this book, I made sure that I kept it down to be uh, sold for only ten dollars. So I made it as as powerful and as strong and as meaty as possible, and I think it's my best book. Um, you know, it's uh, it sells for something like ten dollars, so every young person can, uh, can buy it. Uh, and I really wrote it for uh, young, talented people. I mean, I know that sounds crazy because the name of the book is "Damn Good Advice for People with Talent," and uh, I. Um, and I, you know, in fact, that if you know the first uh, couple of pages of the, of, of the book, I uh, I kind of uh, spe- specifically say, uh, you know, I said there are only four types of person you can be. Identify yourself. This is the first thing in the book. Uh, you know, one very bright, industrious. You're you're perfect. Two very bright, lazy. You're damn shame. Three stupid, lazy. Uh, no problem. You'll just sit on your ass so you're a wash. Four is stupid, industrious. Uh oh, you're dangerous. So if you're number one or two, you'll get a lot of this book. If you're number three or four, why are you reading this book? So I really wrote the book for bright people, you know. Uh, and it and I and basically it was to advertising people and graphic design people. But I got to tell you, I've gotten I get most of my tremendous response from entrepreneurs and business people and um, and and heads of com- companies, etc. You know, and it and it's loaded with. Um, you know, I, I say some things that, that, that are kind of shocking. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm deadly against um, a group, uh, a group groping, group, group grope. I call it about groups working in, in unison with each other. I know American all American business is based on on people working together, getting along with each other, having these long meetings and discussing things, and then et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's all baloney. You know, I. I believe in that one person or two people working by themselves at the most three, and that's the only way you can do great work can be done. Uh, you know, I, I I say things like um, uh, some shocking things that people really can't believe it when I say you can't learn anything from a mistake. We said you can't like. What do you mean? That's what life is all about. You do things, you make mistakes, you you solve them. I said no, you can be cautious or you can be creative. But, you, but there's no such thing as a cautious creative. And the second you come up with an exciting, dramatic idea, and you have a failure with one of them, if you, the only thing you can learn from that is that you better be cautious from then on, from there on. So I, you know, I really pound away and say, uh, you know, when you make a mis- when you do a campaign, you do something that and, and it screws up, forget about it. Um, you cannot learn anything. If you, the only thing you can learn from making a mistake is that you should be very careful and never make a mistake again. And that's the wrong. That's an impossible way to become a great creative person. Yeah. Your book reminds me of the E Myth of the advertising world, the Michael Gerber uh, series. <laughs> It's, it's 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 easy to understand. It's to the point. It's it's easy to carry around. We've recommended it to uh, creatives in this market, and uh, and uh, they get it and they love it, and they mention that to us as well. So that's pretty cool. That you did that, Great, so George. Uh, you live in uh, downtown Manhattan. You've lived there for your whole life. Uh, yeah. Well, beautiful- actually, I was raised in the Bronx, uh, but I. I I moved to Manhattan, uh, you know, when uh, when I uh, came. Actually, when I came back from uh, from Korea, uh, fighting a career in '51, and I um, 
and uh, my wife and I, and I was already married a year, and uh, we uh, moved to uh, Greenwich Village, and I've lived uh, I've lived there since uh, what is it like uh, sixty something years. Yeah, and we don't. And I ain't going about. nowhere. <laughs> well, good. And back in those days, uh, I, we don't even want to get into what you paid for your place because that would be personal and rude, and everybody else would be envious of this beautiful, uh, large, extra large apartment that you have uh, downtown Manhattan. But you know, I wanted to get your take. Being, and I should have said, all of your adult life and your professional life, you've lived downtown uh, Manhattan, but I want to get your take on Comcast deciding to change the uh, one Rockefeller Center, uh, what's now known as the GE Building, uh, into putting their logo, now Comcast Building. (laughs) Well, I've I've had a thing about that, the so-called, the originally called the Pan Am Building from from day one. Uh, When I was... uh, Working with Joe Baum at the at the Restaurant Associates, a guy who really created great uh, the, the idea of great uh, you know dining uh, restaurants in America. Um, I did uh, the, he he put uh, uh, Joe Baum created for uh, I helped him do it uh, create the, uh, uh, restaurants and, and one of them was uh, a, a Zoom Zoom and one of them was uh, called a uh, uh, Charlie Browns and uh, and a Doctor E etc. And anyway, I did these beautiful logos for them. And and um, and I had to present them down, uh, to the people who uh, you know, at the at the Pan Am building, and I to the builders, and I uh, went through it. I explained it all, and uh, they were really terrific, really exciting. And they they said to me, um, and they started to say that they didn't like them. And I said, like them? I can't wait they're, they're too well, whatever they said. And I went into a little bit of a tirade, you know. And I said something, and I said something like very loud. And I took about 12 of them. I said, will you put up this ugly, monstrous building? It destroyed the, the skyline of New York. You destroyed the, the look of Park Avenue. You put up this monstrous, terrible, terrible building. And you're criticizing my logos. And all of a sudden, they all looking at me funny. Like, past me, and I turned around, and who's about 30 feet away out in, at the door but Walter Gropius, who was a great, great designer from the Bauhaus era, and who somehow was given the job to do the, the, that Pan Am building and really did a terrible job, you know, I'm, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I saw him, and I, was, I really was shocked because I, I, the, you know, insulting one of the great Bauhaus masters was just a terrible thing to do. And, and he, was a, he was an elderly man, and, I, and I, I, I owed him all the respect in the world. Anyway... Uh, everybody said, oh my God, and they all ran out, and they came back a couple of minutes later, they said, uh, Mr. Gropius okayed all the logos, because he said they were wonderful. You know? <laughs> wow. You know, wow. Uh, so that's that building, uh, you got to understand, uh, if, you, if you know New York, when you look down Park Avenue, that it, it's a it it's like a shield you know that goes up through through the through the the, the, the top of the of the universe you know and right, it, sure. it blocks everything in New York and it's a really monstrous building. Um, uh, I, I had by the way uh, he invited me, uh, Mr. Walter Copies invited me for lunch a couple of weeks after that, and. Um, and I apologized, and he said, "No, no, don't apologize." He said, "You're right. I, um, 
I did a very bad job. I was forced into doing it, Mr. Worst, and, I, and I feel terrible about it. He, he apologized to me. You know, this oh great. God. And now, by the way, if you look up Walter Gropius, you'll understand who he is. He's as important as a Mies van der Rohe. Wow. Wow. And, you know, I guess now, what is it? The MetLife building, right? MetLife, uh, you know, who cares? You know what I mean? <laughs> I, you, know, I, you know, I don't know if you ever saw, you, you know, the book Fountainhead, you know, where Howard Rourke, you know, he puts up this, this, this terrific building. He designs this terrific building for, the, for a friend of his because, you know, he, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, as a favor to him and, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the so-called friend of his uh, uh, caves into the builders and they, and they start doing little things and screwing up the building and doing terrible things and I, no, actually it was a housing project for, for, for thousands of, of, of you know low income people that's what it was and um, and what he does uh, and, and he can't take it anymore so Howard Walk goes out in the middle of the night this is Ann, crazy Ann Rand right the writer and he goes out in the middle of the night and he and he dynamites and blows that knocks down all these buildings where these uh, where these uh, you know uh, you know poor people were going to live you know so um, uh, you know uh, that's and Rand had a had a most fascist you know but uh, I I wanted to do that to the Pan Am building but um, I, I don't want that. you know I'm not a terrorist yeah no, no. one one final yeah. question before we wrap up this segment George um, I want to know. What was the, you know, looking back, the highlight of a illustrious career like your own? I mean, how could anyone ever pick out one thing that you accomplished to say, you know, that was really it? I mean, more recently, you were awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, from the uh, Clio organization. I know you're. We're going to talk about your TEDx talk, which was also quite yeah. phenomenal. I know the uh, AIGA in Minneapolis, uh, and as well as at the uh, Cannes Advertising Festival, you had a speaking engagement. Uh, sure. But how do you look back on more recent accolades and look back on an illustrious career as you've had it and pick out maybe one or two highlights? Um, I don't know. I, I guess, um, God, if you talk about specific work, I... Um uh, some of the, uh, you know, uh, you know, making Tommy Hilfiger famous with one ad is ridiculous. You know, uh, I mean, outrageous. You know, uh, ESPN, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, they were they were a terrible uh, sports network until I proved that they that they weren't. You know, and I did it in, in, a, in overnight in a campaign. Um, the um, the, the um, uh, but. Uh, but when you look at a, 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 a body of work, the 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 the, the Esquire covers I did in the '60s still is a really important thing, and 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 one of the and the great accolade. I think the best accolade of my life in any awards, et cetera, et cetera, was the fact that the Museum of Modern Art put them in the uh, yeah. in their permanent collections in 2008 mm -hmm. and had a year-long show. I mean, uh, the, the Museum of Modern Art said uh, I mean, that they were works of art. I mean, yeah. specifically, you know, and, and um, I think that is my uh, the most important accolade of my life with, with all the, uh, you know, Hall of Fames and, you know, the Arthur's Hall of Fame, et cetera, et cetera, and I got, and I got them all, but... Uh, 
But uh, I, I think that, that was absolutely the most important. But of course, the, the, while I was doing those covers, I was um, I triggered the creative evolution, and and that was uh, leaving Doyle Dane. Everybody thought there was impact that, we, that you know Doyle Dane was a creative freak. In fact, Doyle. Uh, uh, Bill Burback, when I told him I was leaving Doyle Dane, said, George, there can only be one creative agency, one great creative agency in the world, you know, and I said, Bill, you know, who was a great visionary, and I said, Bill, that's crazy, I I think if the, the reason we're a great agency is because you run it, and you just make all the decisions, and you, a great creative guy, don't let, don't let the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the accountant or the financial people run your agency, and I think uh, I have the talent, and along with a, a couple of uh, uh, partners to do the same thing. And he said, I don't think so, George. Anyway, we started, I started Papa K. Lois in 19, the first week of 1960. Everybody thought I was insane. First ad agency in the world with the name of an art director in the agency, on the masthead. Yeah. Within... I got to tell you, Brad. Ray, I, I, it was like a two in within two or three weeks. We were we were we were hotter than Doyle Dane. We were in, almost immediately successful, and that triggered other uh, uh, groups. Uh, you know, in the next two, three, four, five years, looking at us and saying, "Hey, you know, if Lawrence can do it, you know, we can do it." You know, and coming out of my agency. Uh, you know, uh, was uh, a, a couple of people who started Scallion McCabe Sloves, and Carl Alley came out of my agency, started Carl Alley. Uh, some people came out of my agency, and along with Mary Wells, started Wellsbridge Green. And before you know it, know it, it was the Crave Evolution. Now, the Crave Evolution basically was five or six or seven really terrific ad agencies in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen. Uh, 60s, which really, uh, maybe that, that maybe we did, uh, you know, 0.12 percent of the advertising in America, but that's all America cared about. America saw the commercials and the advertising coming from five or six of these of uh, the creative agencies: Doyle, Dane, Burnback, Pepe, and Lewis, etc. And that's all they talked about. That was the excitement. That that's what changed, basically changed the world. You know. Uh, so that you know, the creative, you know, triggering the creative revolution, you know, uh, you know, and uh, is uh, is uh, is my, you know, there's no ad agencies today that start without a, a, a usually start with a with a without an art director's name and a masthead, and, and or certainly don't uh, take make claim to have a great art director. So, um, so those are the, the, the those are the two probably biggest things that have that, that happened to my life. When George comes to visit the advertising show, it's always great conversation, relevant information, and lots of laughs. The story's not over. We've got lots more to talk about. Stay with us here on the advertising show. You're listening to The Advertising Show with Ray Shillins and Brad Forsyth. Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola, things go better with Coca-Cola, things go better with Coke. Life is much more fun when you're refreshed. And Coke refreshes you best. It's the refresh. With a birthday on the way, light the candles. George Lois, the only person in the world inducted into the Art Director's Hall of Fame, amongst many other things that have happened over an incredible lifetime. Our guest today on the Advertising Show. Welcome back, George. Thanks, thanks, guys. You know, George, you are supposed to be retired, but every time I turn around, you've got a new campaign that you're working on, and 
you sent us an email before we got on the air today to point out a new campaign you and your son are working for uh, on Padilla Cigars. Talk a little bit about that. Well, granted, Ray, i got to tell you, I never thought in my whole life that I would ever do an ad campaign for a tobacco product. Wow. But those cats from Cuba live in their own bubble. I mean, you know, smoking a great cigar is what a Cuban man does, you know. And I, I got into the, the, the into the history of the family of this Padilla, uh, 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 a cigar, P-A-D-I-L-L-A. And, and it's just a beautiful history um, uh, of... Um, their father, the two guys are Nosto and Carlos, and they came to this country. Actually, let me stop, Scott. Their father um, is Herberto Padilla, who was one of the leading um, you know, people fighting for, for Cuban, you know, Batista, the Batista government. And. Uh, Castro finally took over, you know, and 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 and, and won the war. Uh, but um, Padilla uh, severely criticized uh, him after a little, after a year or two, for his uh, uh, severe restrictions on uh, civil liberties, and um, and he was imprisoned by Castro, and um, wow. and. Uh, and with, with and and his family, you know, including the two boys and his wife, uh, were um, uh, were actually uh, uh, put in uh, house arrest in 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 Cuba. And uh, the only way they got back uh, got into to the United States was um, intellectuals all over the world complained mightily, including uh, Ernest Hemingway and um, and. Uh, um, and Senator Kennedy, the Teddy Kennedy, uh, sanctioned uh, their release and, and got them to America. And anyway, so the two young fellas, um, uh, are, are, uh, you know, started, uh, you know, you know the, um, the the sons of the, I call I call it Padilla, the lion hearted Padillo, because the, the, there's a lion on the uh, on uh, there's their logo and. Um, and uh, his forefather, their forefathers grew tobacco in Cuba, and now they're proudly blending cigars that continue the um, the incredible uh, Cuban traditions of cigar making. And so the ads, uh, I, 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 I did ads really starring the um, the great uh, um, rev- uh, Cuban revolutionaries. Uh, uh, you know, it, it starts. I, I started with uh, Hatui, who was the great Taino chief. You know, uh, who was uh, when when Columbus first got there? You know, uh, who who and, and Taino fought a three-year guerrilla war against the Spanish invaders, and he was burned at the stake in like 1510. And he was Cuba's uh, first national hero. Then there, I, then I got Jose Marti, who was the hero of the creative, um, the Cuban Revolutionary Party, um, who dedicated his life to Cuba, who was killed on a horse in battle against the Spanish troops in 1895. And so anyway, I used, I used these all, uh, these great uh, Cuban uh, heroes and uh, fighting on and on and on for Cuban revolution, uh, for, for Cuban uh, freedom. And, um, and I did a campaign with it. And um, 
I, I got to tell you, uh, it's just start, they just started running in the tobacco uh, magazines, and people are going crazy over them. The, the people who smoke cigars are just so um, involved with the with the beauty of the of the, of the family and the and the, uh, the the heroism of their father. You know, would this be um, something that we would be seeing in like cigar aficionado magazines? Yeah, sure, yeah, for yeah. sure. That's that, you know, uh, those are the two places. I mean. If, I think any dedicated um, cigar smoker, and there are millions of them, I think that's what they read. They don't miss an issue of cigar aficionado or cigar snob. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, George, you mentioned uh, MoMA and your work for uh, with the magazine covers, uh, Esquire being featured in there, and I had the honor and privilege of being in New York at that time and saw your work uh, in MoMA, and it was quite exciting. <laughs> Needless to say, I've never known someone personally, as we do you, uh, to actually have their work featured. Well, you, you want to know something about that show? Um, they told me after, you know, while it was going on, that the biggest crowd... Uh, every time you uh, you went to that floor, there's what was 25, 35, 40 people, young people usually crowded around them, looking at them, and it basically the young people looking at them saying, and they didn't understand a lot of them. I mean, you know, you, you, uh, when I draw Stalin's uh, mustache on his uh, on his daughter's face, you know, or you know, uh, uh, you know, they and and when they see a uh, you know a black Santa Claus, Santa Claus that is solicited, a lot of them, a lot of the young people don't didn't know exactly what was going on. All they knew was they were looking at uh, that uh, at magazine covers that were saying something and saying something boldly and and and, and simply and powerfully. Uh, and and the people in MoMA said that there was always day in and day out. There were p young people were crowded in that one area in the museum, uh, you know, kind of in shock over uh, the fact that some some somewhere in, in our in our in our past there were magazine covers that knocked you on your ass. Mm -hmm. and, and your, uh, I guess, was it the publisher or editor who you were working with on that project? Editor, oh, yeah, yeah. editor. And you got oh, no, the, you public, got the publisher was in shock when I did the first cover for him and uh, for them, and um, and uh, it ran. It, it was incredibly successful. But before, when it first came out, he uh, the publisher wrote an editorial and said, "You see that cover? Uh, we have nothing to do with that. You know, we don't agree with it." <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and the uh, fact the fact that the editor backed you and was willing to let you have the freedom. That you had oh, to create. incredible. I mean, everybody's everybody to this day says, "Boy, you had, to, boy, you had some balls doing those covers." I said, "No, doing the covers was nothing. The, the the guy who had the balls was the editor. I mean, because he was getting bombed, even though the you know, the you know the uh, you know the, the, the circulation went from four hundred thousand to almost two million, and it was an incredible success. But even so, he was getting." Every month, or almost every month, he was getting uh, bombed, you know, by uh, by advertisers. I mean, there, there were I did co uh, co uh, 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 your covers like uh, uh, the, the Sonny Listen thing I measure. I, I mean, at a time of real social uh, 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 racial tension in America, you uh, and uh, a lot of people saying, "Hey, you know, the the the, 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 uh, the you know the uh, the Black Panthers, you know, and Elbridge Cleaver, liberals were even saying to me, you know, they were going." a little too far. These black guys are going a little too far. So what I did is I shoved 
I shoved it in America's face by, by showing not only a, a black Santa Claus, but Sonny Liston, who was maybe the baddest mother that ever lived, you know. Uh, I mean, when that cover ran, they lost something like eight, eight clients, eight advertisers, but they were all Southern advertisers, you know, and, and, Harold, and, and when I told Harold, hey, Harold, we're going to get in trouble, every time, every other month, I'd say, hey, Harold, we're going to really get in trouble with this, with this uh, cover, and they'd say, yeah, because he knew, he knew the circulation would go up and up, and it would say who Esquire was, and at the same time, they lost the, all the racist of, of advertisers down south, and they just got all the great advertisers to, to pick up the slack. So uh, the, 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 the thing about it, the, the magazine was an incredible success, but, but believe it or not, Harold Hayes had to take it on the chin almost every month. People complaining, the air people complaining, and he never bothered me about it. He just let me, you know, I did my thing, and he just took it on the chin. And, uh, and, um, and that's why and, he hired you. Yeah, and and, it, and 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 that became the uh, the magazine made. Uh, uh, it was the golden age of uh, everybody calls it the golden age of of journalism, and that was Esquire magazine. That was Harold Hayes, and uh, and I'm so proud that I helped him do it. You know, George, let's. Uh, I'm going to set something up here and see if it can illustrate that great advertising is great advertising, regardless of what particular medium you're working within. You know, lots said about online advertising today, and it's also been said that when it comes to online advertising, data, not dimensions, will be the future of online advertising. Now, we all know that, you know, when it comes to online ads, we've seen leaderboards, skyscrapers, full banner ads that accompany uh, online viewing. Uh, and yet, more recently, George, we've heard about how Facebook and Twitter, just to mention a few, have been blending ads directly into a user's con uh, content stream. In other words, you know, as you're looking and reading and inter interfacing with Facebook and Twitter, all of a sudden information is flowing through that uh, line of uh, digital engagement that you have, and you're not really sure. Uh, what, yeah, you know, yeah. It's not like an ad used to be, where it used to yeah, be. Yeah, no, hey, you, feel like you feel like you're getting raped. Yeah, it's, and it's no longer, hey, look at me, I'm an ad, I'm over here. So fast forward, George, four or five years, and let's say online advertising has become content-driven, and all the ads that we're seeing are always online and embedded in content stream. Would you find this limiting to creative advertising that, in your scope, knocks consumers upside the head? I know that's what you're... No, no, I know, because I think, you know, I, I was at the last year, or two years ago, I was at Con. Uh, you know, with um, uh, 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 you know, uh, and and there was a big discussion going on. Uh, you know, big press conference about about uh, about advertising, et cetera, et cetera, And they went on and on and on. And, and Lee Cloud was the guy who I went to uh, to sure. to support because he was getting a big award there. You know, a very good guy. And they went on. They were talking. Went on and on and on about advertising and blah blah. And, and all of it was the, it was the media, and all of it was the, the, the uh, you know the, 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 the new digital age, etc. And finally, I said, you know, I haven't heard the goddamn word creativity once in this whole discussion. You know, because creativity can solve almost any problem. The creative act, the defeat of habit by originality, overcomes everything. 
and creativity, no matter what the, the medium and no matter what the delivery, uh, it, you know, that's what it's all about. The name of the, what drives the world is, is creativity, period. So nothing has really changed when you it, think about it. it. Absolutely not. When yeah. people start thinking about and, 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 and agencies and, every, and they, all they start talking about is the, is, uh, is the delivery of it and, and where and how, I mean, that's, and they never discuss creativity. <laughs> Everything's going to be terrible. You know, and you mentioned Ted Clow, uh, uh, truly. Lee, Lee Clow. Lee Clow, yeah. 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 Uh, TBWH, Shy Day, for those of men. Yeah, exactly. Good man. Great man. Uh, you know, George, uh, you know, that you make a very good point. We're going to hold conversation about the TEDx speech till next segment, but I want to go back to what you said about Bill Bernbach and working in that environment that he truly did create the first and only uh, environment, creative environment that allowed that type of advertising to actually get out there and be what was called. Sure, he insisted on that. On, exactly. He insisted on that environment. Yeah, and I, and for the young listeners out there that may not be aware, when you're sitting in a room, or when you're watching Mad Men, for that matter, and they illustrate this, I think, in one of the one of the series, uh, one of the programs, and that is when an art director is combined with a copywriter and they sit together and come up with ideas. That truly was an innovative idea that Bernbach uh, instituted at, at the and, it, and it's because he was lucky enough when he was younger to, uh, he was working at the Weintraub, they gave him, uh, he got the job as the creative, uh, I think it was the, not the, the copy chief, and, and Paul Rand, working solo, uh, the first modern art director, the first Paul Rand was doing uh, all back here, etc. And he did them on his own. Didn't do what any writers said. And he was, and he did beautiful, beautiful work. And he did that. Was I was fourteen years old when uh, in high school, and I and I was looking at his work when he was like twenty seven, and I thought, and I wanted to be him. I didn't want to do work like him, but I wanted to be him in that I, I could make a living doing work my way. In any case, Bill had the. The incredible experience of go, going into Paul's room. They told him to leave him alone, but he went in and he became slowly but surely. He said, Gee, that's beautiful. And oh, yeah, maybe you should change that word there. And before you knew it, Paul Van uh, 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 was allowing uh, uh, Bill Burnback to sit and work with him a little bit. And, and Bill Burnback had an epiphany. The epiphany was that if you could, a copywriter can work with a terrific graphic designer, especially, you know, and a guy like Forrand. You could do better work. Everything could be better. And I said, duh, no shit. <laughs> but that was the epiphany. And for because the, and before for that, before that, every art director in, in every agency sat in a room with his thumb up his googie, uh, uh, waiting for a copywriter or, or and or a, a, a ad guy, a, 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 a counter guy, to walk in and give him a piece of, uh, of a paper and say, "Make a layout." Yeah. And all of a sudden, Bill Burnback said, "No, what I'm going to do." And and and, to, and his credo was, and he said this to me very many times. Uh, he very simply was, "Take a terrific." copywriter and a terrific art director and put him in a room lock the door and don't let him out until they come out with a terrific ad <laughs> case closed that's simple and and that very simple thing 
that was a uh, it was a, a thunderbolt in business. Uh, now, you know, when Bill started Doyle Day in Birmingham, he tried to get uh, Rand to come with him and Phil Paul said, no, 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 no. And, and, and instead, uh, he, he suggested a young, uh, art, a young designer he knew uh, by the name of Bob Gage. The luckiest thing that Bill Birnbach ever had did in the world is he, he hired, uh, luckily, a guy by the name of Bob Gage. He had a terrific uh, a woman writer who started uh, who ran his uh, create, uh, uh, copy department. Her name was Phyllis Robinson. But he brought in Bob Gage, and they sat down and they were the first art director, uh, you know, um, the, you know, uh, uh, you know, writer team, and they did the sensational work the first year or two. Uh, that uh, Doyle Dane, where Doyle Dane, you know, just knocked everybody, you know, knocked everybody dead, you know, and that, and they, and that was the beginning, and that was the first great, really, truly great advertising, where where copy and uh, and art in synergy, uh, you know, cre- created the uh, you know superior work, and and um, and and basically it was the addition. Now understand this: it was the addition. There has always been terrific writing in advertising, always. You can go. You can go back into the hack days, and you'll come up with terrific lines. Uh, uh, what Bill? What it was? The it was the gigantic success, and the, uh, and the power of the of the art director being added to the team, and that changed advertising. The 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 fact that all of a sudden great art direction came into into being. That's what changed. That's what. Triggered the, uh, really triggered the creative evolution, and that's what, oh. and that's what triggers great work to, the, to this day. One final question, and then we'll take a break, George. Uh, you talk about copy on one side and then art on the other. I immediately think about the days back when David Ogilvy, he himself, as well as ultimately his agency, became known for these heavy copy laden ads that people would wonder do people really take the time to read all this crap and Ogilvy proved that they actually did engage with the copy well uh, look I, I always respected much of his work I, 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 did I ever tell you a story about him trying to hire me no go ahead please he please tried uh, I was at Doyle Lane burn back and I was I kept getting calls from his uh, I think it was his copy chief uh, 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 Cliff Fields an Englishman, and uh, he wanted me. I was working at Doyle Dane, uh, and um, actually before that too. Yeah. Anyway, and uh, and he uh, he wanted me to come see David Ogilvy, and I said, "For what?" He said, "Well, he's looking for an art director." And I said, "You got to be kidding! I mean, I don't agree. There's not one. There's not. I I, I don't agree with the first sentence in this in this confession uh, in this book." You know, I don't agree with anything in this book. Anyway, he kept calling me, and I kept saying no. And finally, he called me up, and he said, George, please, because Mr. Ogle was yelling at me, could you come? So I showed up. So I show up one night, you know, and um, there's David Ogilvy trying to convince me to, be, to become his head art director at, at, at uh, Ogilvy and Mesa. And I and I and I told him I don't agree with anything in your book. I mean, he I, I can't tell you the rules he has. You know, you can't drop type out of uh, photographs. You can't do uh, your your logo has to be in the right hand corner. You know, all kinds of these stupid rules. And um, 
and uh, and and as he, he kept me there for two hours, and every fifteen minutes the, he raised the, 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 my salary five thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. uh, and at the point where it was like three times when I was making a Doyle Dane, and um, and I said it would be impossible. This dog would be not, 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 no no way. I mean, the only way I could take the job is if um, I was also made creative director. And of course, he looked at me and he said, "Touche," because of course he's the creative director, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, um, uh, so uh, you know, uh, they uh, they did um, believe it or not. I mean, Bill Burbach hated their work, but uh, I think he was wrong. I didn't, I didn't hate the work because there was some, some a couple of campaigns he did that was very terrific. I mean, Schwepper Vessens. I don't know if you remember that. Sure. The uh, the man with the uh, you know the uh, Hathaway uh, shirt you know uh, with with the uh, so there was some uh, terrific image advertising I think and and the images were kind of visual images but um, but it it, but that's not creativity true creativity when you when you got all those rules you know I mean the only rule I I ever had was uh, not do do ads that do a campaign that uh, where people um, uh, are almost shocked by them, you know, almost shocked by the uh, by the uh, almost seemingly outrageous advertising. Confessions of an Ad Man, 1963, as I recall, George, and a book that uh, advertising was not a topic that was a lot written about back in those days, was it? No, I think um, I don't remember anything else. You know, where I. Uh, the book that got me to to write my first book, George, be careful, was to, uh, was Jared Delafamina's book. Uh, you know the the folks who buy, I don't remember the folks who gave you Pearl Harbor, whatever it was. And I hated this book. I hated it so bad. I said I'm going to write a book about what the advertising business is about. Because I hated this book because his book was, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's all fun and games, or you know, screwing and you know, whatever. It, it was like a madman. Uh, a script, you know, and uh, and I did, and I, I that's why I wrote George Be Careful, which was my first book, and basically my George Be Careful was based on on my um, on my uh, 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 my anti it's my anti slogan, you know, the, 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 you know, if, if you're careful in, in with advertising, you know, um, you can't do great work, you know, and I, I, of course I I always. When I talk about it, sometimes I say, um, I was six months old in my crib in the Bronx. I remember it well. A dark and stormy night. Thunder, lightning, and all of a sudden a thunder clash. sound of thunder, and through the ceiling came this gigantic white hand. I found out years later it was the hand, the Michelangelo's hand. He had it right. God was white and he's a very big man. Anyway, and the voice and it, and it's just, the hand came in and said, "George, be careful." <laughs> and then I said, uh, "My mother said, Yorios prosexe in Greek.' You know, and my father, Yorios prosexe in Greek.' And then my all my the teachers in school and all my coaches at, in sports. And then and then when I when I was in uh, you know in Korea, the, you know, fighting uh, the the Chinese on the North Korean, George, be careful. And then when you come back." home and you get out advertising, that's when everybody says, George, be careful, including your secretary, you know. And the last thing in the world, like going back to it by saying that you can be cautious, you can be creative, but you can't be a cautious creative. That was me saying, you know, and so my anti 
my anti-slogan's always been George. Be careful. Right? And if I'm careful, I'm a if I'm careful, I'm a bum. I can't do great work. <laughs> Let's not be careful. Let's continue these great stories here with Ray and Brad and our very special guest George Lois on the advertising show. We'll do that in just a moment. He introduced and popularized the Xerox culture. He created the concept and prototype design for the New York supplement of the Herald Tribune, the forerunner of New York Magazine, and made a failing MTV a big success with his I Want My MTV campaign. It's George Lois with Ray and Brad here on The Advertising Show. Always a pleasure, George. Thanks for stopping by. Me too. It's a pleasure. Hey, George. Uh... We can't talk about Ray's favorite story, which involves Mickey Mantle, and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, we could. Oh, oh, if your audience only knew, okay. Yes, that's right. But what we can talk about, and I remember it fondly because I think it really gives uh, people insights into who George Lois really is and how you think. You told a story a couple shows ago, many years ago, about, and I can't remember whether you were at the School of Performing Arts or whether you were at Pratt, but you, the teacher handed everybody out a, a piece of paper, a, a, a drawing paper, I suppose, and it was a particular configuration that was rectangular. Sure. And, and people were, your students, you being one of them, were supposed to uh, create well, Okay, let me, let me tell you this story, yeah. because um, it was at the High School of Music and Art. It was the first year of school. I was 14 and uh, and uh, you take all the academic courses, but also men, uh, you know, three courses of art, you know, from designing to drawing, et cetera, et cetera. And it was my first design course. And um, basically, uh, everybody, uh, you know, um, every day, literally every day, uh, a sheet of eighteen by twenty-four, and you would have to do it. And the teacher and the, uh, Mr. Patterson said, "Okay, do a design first. We're going to do a design of circles." And you have scissors and paper, and you cut out circles, and you do a design. And then the next day, okay, now do a design of triangles and squares together. And then, and and he and he he went through the you know triangles and squares and et cetera, et cetera. And, and every day, you did a, a different design. And and they were kind of you kind of did knockoffs of, of people like Herbert Matter and Herbert Bayer and and Mondrian and Kandinsky, et cetera, et cetera, and Paul Clay. And um, and after about doing thirty of them or more. Uh, he came in one day and he said, he, he gave us a sheet of 18 by 24 Strathmore paper. Maybe it cost a quarter a page, which was a fortune back then. Mm-hmm. And he laid it down at his desk and he said, um, today we're going to do just rectangle. And uh, what you do today will be one half of the mark for the whole term. And everybody was feverishly cutting out rectangles and squares and shapes and putting them down in places. And I sat there, and I leaned back, looking out the window, listening to the birds, the birds singing outside. It was spring, and and uh, I didn't move. And he and he was walk and he was. 
walking around and he was he was he was turning red. He was furious. He saw that I wasn't doing any work. He was saying what? And he knew I was a terrific student, but he was at the same time he said, "How? You know what is this? What is wrong with this guy? With this student?" And anyway, after an hour and twenty minutes, he said, "Time's up." And he and he went and he started to pull, grab everybody's eighteen by twenty four, and he came up to me, white sheet of paper, and I before and I said, "Hold it," and I signed my name. G. Lois at the bottom of this 18 by 24 white triangle. Totally blank. Totally blank. <laughs> and that's the day, I mean, I literally, it was a self, it was really the, the epiphany of my life because I realized really for the Maybe for the first time that anything you do, any any problem that's given you, you have to come back with a innovative, exciting, dynamic idea. Okay. And I started with the guy saying, "Do a design of rectangles." I gave him one pure uh, uh, white rectangle, and and it really is. It was like like almost a defining point in my life where I realized everything I do has got to knock. Got to when you show it to somebody, they got to look at it and they got to go, "Wow!" And, the and that's the, and that, it's as simple as that. And you—that was half your credit for that class. Half yeah, I mean that's why. Uh, and something made me—I don't know—I never. I, there was not. I, I, I couldn't think it through. I, uh, uh, he said for half the credit, and I said, uh, "How do I do something that's really sensational?" And I said, and I immediately said, an eighteen by twenty-four white triangle, white rectangle, and um, and you know, just instinctively, bam, like that. What? What? Really? He. By the way, he didn't understand what I did because. Now, how did he, he receive it, though? Well, no, he didn't understand what I did because he he just grabbed it and was still furious. And I said, and it was the last, uh, it was the last class of the day, and and I. Went home. Actually, I went to basketball practice. I think, and and I'm sitting there saying to him, "I, oh my God, he didn't understand it." Anyway, I come in the next morning, and I'm in the hallways, and three or four teachers walked up to me and said, "George, what you did in Mr. Patterson's class was wonderful." So obviously, what happened is he went to his locker, their their locker room, the teachers' locker room, and he probably said, "What? But this lowest," and he explained to everybody what he did, what I did. And he, what does he do? He gives me this 18 by 24 white rectangle. And all of a sudden, everybody, and everybody understood what I did, you know. And I, I think he, he found out what I did. So uh, it, it was a late kick for him because he didn't, you know, he, I don't think they expect that kind of um, conceptual thinking from somebody. Sure. The point is, what I was saying is you got to think your way through uh, and come up with an answer to everything you do. And everything you do, people, somebody should, persons, the people you showed the showed showed the job to the head. If the head doesn't go back a foot, you know something's wrong. You know that's a that's a hell of a story, and it's got a great uh, a great message and lesson incorporated in it. George, uh, I want to know how in the hell your son and you visited Greece without starting World War Three recently. How did that happen? Well, let me say something to you. Uh, I, I, you know, 
as I said, I went there because of the damn good, my damn good advice book was being printed, you know, being translated, and I also did some additional spreads to talk to the Greek people. But um, if you think uh, if you think I'm well known in my on my block. Uh, in Greece, I mean, uh, uh, my going to Greece was like uh, a big event in Greece. You know, this, uh, this, you know the Greek-American advertising legend comes home uh, to, to Greece, you know, where, where he began. And, um, and uh, I, it was the most, some of the most emotional days of my life, you know. You know, the um, Pope is getting rid of his Pope-mobile. Maybe you could buy it and use it over there, ride around and wave at people. I think that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you something. I, I never, I never had a reception like that. I mean, I, I when I talk in America, I, you know, I get, I, I get, you know, five hundred selfies and everybody and kids around me says them. But I never saw anything so emotional in my life as me being there. I swear to God. And and when I gave my TED talk, um, uh, there were two really important parts of the TED talk. You know, at one point, I you know I, I I'm talking about truth to power, and I'm I'm, I'm saying something like this. So if you're if you're aspiring to be a pioneer in your chosen creative field and want to create great work and succeed, not only in your profession but in life, your mission is not to sedate but to awaken, to disturb, to communicate, to command, to instigate, and more importantly, to provoke. And then I went through. I, I gave a little delivery. I, you got to understand that in, in, in Greece, every October 28th is Oshi Day. O-X-I. But it's the word Oshi means no in Greece. In Greek. And it's and that Oshi Day celebrates when the Prime Minister of Greece told Mussolini to kiss off when he demanded Greece surrender to him when he invaded Greece in 1939. So it's very famous there, Oshie Day. So I then, after I, I, talk, I talked about provoking, etc., I said, joined with us in the commu- creative community who say, Oshie to fascism, then and now. When I said Oshie to fascism, the crowd, the, the, the Greek, the, the Greeks did like, I mean, they almost, they rose, they didn't stand up, but they rose out of their seats, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And, uh, and then and now, say Oshie to racism, anti-Semitism, and homophobia. Say Oshie to tax cheats who threaten the future of Greece. Say Oshie to government that benefits the wealthy at the expense of the poor and powerless. Say yes every October 28th and be proud of your heritage. I say, I, you, you never saw a crowd more emotional when I read that to them. Because I was talking to the young people in Greece. They've been through this terrible, terrible, they're going through this terrible economic times. I mean, many of them are, 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 were leaving Greece. There were suicides in Greece, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to a, a group of young people, and they were thrilled. They got so damn excited, you know. I mean, and that was a big part of my talk because I was giving them advice, and I was telling them, be proud of your damn heritage and don't take any shit from anybody. At the same time, another exciting part of it was that I, I, I showed them some of the campaign I did where in 1985 uh, I did a campaign. Uh, President Reagan, um, who hated Greece at the time, hated the Greek government, um, um, there, there was a... Um, there was a 
shop, a a a plane, you know, somebody hijacked a plane in the Greek airport, and they they flew to Rome, et cetera, et cetera, and and Reagan came out and really nastily said, told everybody, don't, nobody should go to Greece. And that was the very beginning of the uh, of the tourist season, and uh, and uh, you know it, and and everything froze. All of a sudden, um, nobody was going to Greece, and it, everybody was you know the planes were empty. Uh, um, it was it was, and the Greek government didn't know what to do. And somehow, they got to me, and they said, "Is there any what, what could we do?" And I did a campaign in four days. I got. 39 people, 38 people, um, uh, uh, who are no, not of Greek descent, all Americans, and I photographed, and I did commercials, and I had people like um, Roddy McDowell, who said, uh, I was born in London and came to America when I was 12 years old. Now, at last, I'm coming home to Greece. And then a Zsa Gabor would say would come on. She said, "I was born in Hungary. Da- now, darling, I'm going home to Greece." You know, Johnny and I just, you know, my people came from Lithuania at the turn of the century. Finally, I'm going home to Greece. So I had these 39 famous Americans who were saying, "Screw you, President Reagan. We're not worried about security." It, we we're going home to where to the birthplace of democracy. We're going home where everything began, and I got people like you know Lloyd. It was fun. I I called up Lloyd Bridges, who was a friend of mine, and I told him about. It. He said, and he and he he called me back and he said, and I said, Lloyd, are you gonna go to Greece? You know, you go, you know, for free, etc. All these people could afford to go to Greece, but the point is, they were going as guests to the government. And I said, now tell me your background. He said, yeah, I don't know. We've been here a long time. Lloyd, find out where you're, where you're from. Anyway, he called me back the next day and he said, oh my God, I just talked to my aunt. Um, uh, my ancestors came from the British Islands uh, over to America on the Mayflower. <laughs> <laughs> he he wow. never knew he, his family came from the Mayflower. Anyway, so I showed this. I showed this uh, some of the campaign, uh, you know, about ten or eleven of the of the people to the Greek audience, uh, you know, who had never seen it because this was 1985, and that you know, and it's thirty something years ago, and, and I'm talking to mostly to, to, to people who were babies then or weren't born then, and they went ape when they saw the commercials, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I tell you, the whole trip to Greece was thrilling. I mean, I, um, I. Um, um, I hadn't been there for many, many years, and uh, you know, and all I was, all I thought about when I was there was, um, God, I wish my my, my mom and papa uh, could see me, you know. Yeah. And your parents came from Greece. Your first generation. Oh yeah. sure, my father came to this country when he was 1907. Yeah. In 1907, excuse me, uh, when he was 14. Wow. Wow. His father. Uh, Sold from the, you know, from a village at the very, very top of a mountain, and his father sold some, um, probably some goats and some lambs, and raised the money for, for him to for steerage. And he came here with like five dollars in his pocket, 
got off in New York, didn't know a person, didn't know the language, didn't know anything when he was 14. And when he was 21, he opened a beautiful flower shop on 135th Street and Broadway. You know, and I got pictures of it, you know, where he's the most best-looking guy in the world in the beautiful clothing. And I sit there, and I and treat, I, people say, you know, well, boy, you did a lot in your life, George. I said, man, I'm nothing compared to my father. I mean, yeah. think about these guys. Think of how terrific these people were. They come to this country, they didn't know nothing, didn't know the language, didn't know anything, and they worked their ass off, and they made America what America is today. Well, yeah. the things you say about your father uh, obviously would make him very proud, considering your... Uh, immeasurable uh, achievements throughout your life. What a great thing to say about you, Dan. Yeah, my papa was, my papa was great. I, uh, I worked, uh, you know, when, you, when your father is, um, you know, in the old country, you know, was, um, you know had, a, had a retail store. My father had a flower store. I worked um, from the time I was six years old at a school right to the store. I worked every day of my life you know, including Saturday and Sunday, I had to sneak away at night to play ball. You know, to, um, and um, and I never complained one day in my life. Not only did I work in the store, but basically I was the deliver, I was the long range delivery boy. From the time I was seven years old, I was I would take you know funeral wreaths that were like six, seven foot tall, and I was three foot, you know, four foot five maybe, and I would have to. Take them in the, on the subway and on buses all over New York. So I I traveled all over New York to every part of New York delivering flowers and um, and every day when I came back from the, from public school and certainly when I came back from high school, I mean there was a delivery for me to go when I got home maybe at four thirty or five o'clock. It was delivered for me to take something to Queens or to Brooklyn, etc. And I never complained one day in my life because what I was doing, I was helping my pop, my papa, you know, um, you know, put the, put food on the table. So I, so I got my work ethic from my father, and certainly my mother, who worked like a slave, you know, and um, and. Um, and um, and uh, I, I I credit my Greekness as a big part of uh, you know what I believe in. Well, George, in addition to that, you got to learn the subway system at a very young age for your move to Manhattan. <laughs> you bet I did. <laughs> That's good. George, I don't know about Ray, but I know I speak for, purely for both of us when I say, you know, we, we've interviewed over five, 600 uh, people in the advertising business over the past 13, 14 years, and you uh, are certainly one of the top, if not the top, uh, legendary advertising person uh, that we've spoken to, and it's always a joy talking to you. Uh, boy, I love, I love you. I always, always, I'm always a little nervous with you guys because you usually outpun me and outfund me. <laughs> we, we don't mean to, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it sure is fun trying. That's for sure. <laughs> and by the way, can I say that uh, you know, just googling George Lois would be a, a fun thing in itself, and you can see all about George. But go to georgelois.com and look under the press tab, and there will be a link directly to the TEDx talk that we've been talking about this last segment. And if it doesn't have any bit of, a, of an emotional tug on your heart uh, as you watch and listen uh, to a wonderful speech given in, was that Athens, George, that it was given? No, that was at Thess- Thessaloniki. Yes, which is uh, a which is a very beautiful city uh, to the east of it. Wow, 
Well, it, it's, uh, it's a very provocative, and, and there's a lot to be learned in listening, but there's also an emotional side to the talk that uh, you will definitely uh, connect with and see a side of George that maybe you haven't seen before. These conversations are so great, it feels like we're sitting around uh, your living room and just chatting. That's what makes them so great. And uh, we do appreciate your time, George. Uh, continue to do amazing things as if you had to be told to do that. But uh, <laughs> thanks again for being a part of the show, George. I love you both, guys. Love, love you, too, George. Thanks. Take care. And there you have all of the reasons wrapped up into one incredible program of why we love George Lewis so much. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And, you know, this stuff sticks around as well, being on the web, and it's global. If you want somebody to hear today's interview, just let them know to go to the advertising show where all of the shows are archived. We got lots of stuff archived up there on the World Wide Web. Thank you, Al Gore. The advertising show is brought to you by Advertising Age magazine. Visit online at adage.com. The advertising show is a copyrighted Big Radio Midgets production, and we'll talk to you again soon. Why do more media professionals read IWantMedia.com? IWantMedia.com features reports from industry leaders and media personalities. IWantMedia.com gives you quick access to news, stats, trade orgs, and industry publications. And it's updated daily. Forbes says IWantMedia.com contains everything media professionals need to stay ahead of the game. The Washington Post calls it the source for the serious media geek. Do you get it? If you don't, you should. To sign up for free daily email alerts, visit IWantMedia.com.